Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory, and today's episode is going to focus on the challenges that marketers face in an overcrowded and noisy cybersecurity market with, I think, you know, 4,000 competitors these days or whatever it is. But joining me today is Sherry Love, the Distinguished uh, Chief Marketing Officer at Exabeam. She was also a former CMO at Expanse and served in a similar role at Druva and Splunk, who she got her start as a sports anchor at uh, WJXX, the ABC affiliate in Jacksonville, Florida, covering the Jaguars, the Dolphins, the Tampa Bay Bucks, as well as the NBA NASCAR Major League Baseball and PGA Tour. So welcome, Sherry. I'm glad you could join me today. Steve, thank you so much for having me. It's really uh, great to be here. And uh, when you read off uh, my Silicon Valley experience and my sports experience, I think, gosh, I'm not that old, am I? I sound like I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, being a sports anchor (laughs) is important to me and probably many of our audience here who, who find that there are you know, similarities between the athletes' conditioning and training and rigor and discipline and the execution of uh, cybersecurity marketing plans as well. So in my mind, sales and marketing and and college and uh, professional athletics go hand in hand. Very true. That's very true. So let's get to it here. We've got like a million players in the cybersecurity markets now. How do you How do you distinguish yourself from all the other lookalikes who claim to do what you do better? Well, it is a noisy market. And the challenging part of marketing for a cybersecurity company is everyone says the same thing. Uh, You can go on pretty much any cybersecurity company's website, and they are experts in XDR. They're experts in zero trust. They're experts in stopping breaches. Everyone says the same thing, whether their product can actually do that or solve that problem. And that's really, to me, what makes it super challenging. So not only are there you know, thousands of players, but everybody in many ways is saying the same thing about what they do. So first, let me address the marketing part of this. And then second, want to also talk about what prospects and customers can do to help themselves when the market is this noisy. So first to the marketing part of the question, I think the secret, at least for me and the way I look at marketing is in answering the questions before you get right to talking about your product functionality. And that's where it just gets to addressing the pain points and translating that to the buyer journey right out of the gate. Because I think when someone is looking for a solution or approaches a website, they're trying to solve a problem. So you need to focus your marketing on having really strong content, blogs, white papers, videos that address the pain points. Again, not just throw you right into a, you know, a very complicated product demo. And then this gets to sort of the second part about prospects and, and really why folks looking for a cybersecurity solution need to do their research. It's really important to do your own homework because we shouldn't be in a world and we're not in a world where a buyer only listens to the company and then makes the decision. Every cyber company in the world will tell you they can solve your problem. But you as a prospect, you've got to do your homework with Gartner and with Forrester 
and then find your own backdoor references on the platform you're thinking about buying. But don't just listen to the ones the company gives you. It's really buyer beware. You got to do your homework or you'll end up with a solution that does not what you bought it for. Yeah, all of that is true. And you and I are on the same page as we usually are here. That is definitely one of the biggest complaints of every CISO I know is that, you know, you got to stop bombarding me with these fantastic messages that make no sense at all. As I go from website to website to website, they're, Mm -hmm. they're all the same. So we need to do something very different. And that makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things that's happening in the industry now, of course, since we've seen 18 months or whatever it is of the pandemic sort of changing the landscape in terms of how we present ourselves to our prospects from a marketing point of view is the trade show business. And so with that in mind, in in your case, what do you guys plan, say, looking out over the next 12 to 18 months in terms of what are your budgeting and marketing spend going to look like related to in-person versus virtual events? Do you think mm-hmm. that you think the virtual event or some you know hybrid version of that's going to emerge that is going to make sense going forward? Or what's your prediction in that regard? First, I'll start with what was happening when I arrived at Exabeam over a year ago. I inherited a very interesting issue when I came to Exabeam around trade shows and around live events, but it wasn't an unusual one from my conversations with other CMOs. I mean, pre-pandemic, Exabeam was a heavily events-focused marketing organization, very little in place in terms of a digital strategy. And when COVID hit, the team just went straight to virtual events, which I understand it just seemed like a logical and easy thing to do. Oh, everyone's just going to go and rush to virtual events and, and that's how we're going to you know, reach the buyer. But we had to change. And really in the last year, we've become a digital first marketing team. And we weren't that 12 months ago. Now we use demand gen campaigns. We use content to drive interest, not a booth at a trade show. And I'll have to say going forward, when you look at the next 12 to 18 months, we will never go back. Exabeam will never go back to 80% of its marketing dollars being spent on booths and on trade show sponsorships. Now, we'll still do those smaller in-person type of events. And, you know, we will have a presence at RSA and Black Hat. I think there's a few that you just have to say, yeah, we're going to go do those. But we won't have a big box event strategy any longer. And to be honest, Steve, we see much more, you know, better ROI and qualified leads coming in through investing in things like SEO and investing in our content and investing in digital and paid media that we weren't doing pre-pandemic. We were really going to all of those, um, all of those events and trade shows. So when I look into the future, the next 12 to 18 months, it's going to be much more digital in terms of the things I mentioned around SEO and content, and much less on any kind of sponsorship of a virtual event. Yeah, and I think uh, if you, you know, RSA is an example of a long time coming, and and a lot of those folks that you know, if you look at the last two three years where I've been there, the attitude generally was kind of like, you know, we're here, we're spending this money, we don't really expect to get a lot out of it, and we went more toward. You know, cocktail parties and more cocktail parties and yes. more cocktail parties. And pretty soon it was like a cocktail party with an event show stuck on the side. And 
And uh, the returns looked like they were diminishing at that point, too. So, yeah, maybe it took the pandemic to shake everybody loose and say, hey, you know, maybe this isn't working at all. Maybe the, you know, average cost per lead of whatever the number is, 2,500, 4,500 is way too high to begin with. So, so it's probably a really good thing. And I think your prognostication of a smaller, more focused events probably is going to make a lot of sense to people if we ever get back to that world. Yeah. And I think, Steve, what many of us are still doing is still using the credits that we had from two years ago at some of these events because they haven't been back in person. And so now this year, we're like, well, we have credits, we need to use them. What I'm going to be really interested to see is 12 months from now, when we've all used up our credits, does anyone go back at the level they were going, you know, before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we both know the answer. I think we do. <laughs> I know you're a believer in direct to human marketing principles and and I think you think that today's marketers spend far too much time dwelling on the digital metrics and not enough on the creative side of the business. What's your advice about a good mix of creative and and what is apparently our obsession with uh, with these numbers? Uh, and, obsession and, with numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Help me with that. Well, you know, you and I have talked about this a few times and I've written and spoken on this topic a couple of times and I've always, you know, tried to tell the folks around me, don't let metrics kill your marketing. And I don't want to date myself in Silicon Valley, but I do remember a day when the first topic on the agenda of every meeting wasn't the immediate ROI of the marketing activity that you were doing. And that was refreshing because it gave marketing time to breathe. And I think marketing needs time to breathe. And we don't always get that with the obsession uh, around metrics. Now, nobody can deny the need for data and metrics and marketing. And I am one of the first people to ask, what was the ROI of that event? Did anyone download that white paper? How did it convert? But, but that a problem really arises when we focus you know, just too closely on that number and not enough on the impact or just the journey that somebody is taking. You know, you can really measure clicks, you can measure views and likes and website traffic and intent, but it's really hard to put a number on creativity. And how do you really measure how deeply your campaign resonated beyond how long they stayed on the page? I think there's a lot of ways you can do that. But my worry has always been that the focus on metrics might really harm our willingness to try new things as marketers because. I was thinking about this yesterday, you know, when I was thinking about us talking and I thought, you know, the focus on metrics, it's almost like fear-based marketing in a way. It makes marketers want to only do the sure things versus really trying something different. And I have to say, I do miss those days where you could, you know, dream up ideas and not frantically worry about whether it was going to be able to tie to a deal within 24 hours. So I really want to see the balance be, yes, let's look at our metrics. We know the important ones we want to measure, but at the same time, not lose that magic in marketing because, you know, at the end of the day, marketing, I think is about people and people are moved by ideas and by a bigger vision. I just hope we don't lose that as marketers. It's kind of a love hate thing too, right? I mean, the board wants to but always view marketing as a, as a cost center, not as a not as a profit center, and and historically, it's uh, it's you know sort of self fulfilling prophecy there too. And 
mm-hmm. because there's no way ever to say, well, you know, the ROI is this and so, because it's virtually impossible to connect those dots between marketing spend and revenue. Yeah. yeah. Especially in the softer areas of marketing in like the corporate marketing areas where you have customer marketers and you have, you know, social media and PR and brand. You know, those aren't, yeah. And brand, you can't always tie a direct ROI to the, those things, but you have to trust your gut in many ways that they're working and that they're resonating. Well, I think when Pepsi-Cola looks at Coca-Cola, I think they have a different view of brand than you and I do. Yes. And our <laughs> compatriots do. It's super important, super important. And if they're if the boards don't get that, then, you know, they only have to look to the leaders in, in each category. I mean, they're, you know, the crowd strikes and the, you know, whomsoever's in each of their categories are leading for a reason. And the reason is not just lead gen tracking metrics to, you know, sales qualified leads. It goes well beond that, obviously. So, yes, you're right. And it's very tempting for companies to underfund in that brand area and in the PR and AR area and push a majority of their spend and demand gen. And you really do have to try to fight as a CMO to maintain the balance. Exactly. Your early days in the media business were all about sports. And then since you've been also deeply involved in soccer at the local level, I think over in Livermore, right? What, what is it about sports that transfers to technology and marketing in your mind? And, and why is that important just for our audience? This is an article that I want to write, so I'm glad you're asking me about it. And it's not so much translates to technology marketing as I think it translates just in general to leadership. At least that's how I think of it in my mind. I've spent years on the sidelines as a sports reporter, covering the NFL, later as a soccer mom, watching my daughter. And you know, when I think about how this transfers to technology marketing, it really transfers to how do you build a team? as a CMO and how do you manage a team? Because ultimately, you know, the CMO is the coach and everyone in marketing and the SDR team are the players. So, you know, when it comes to building a team, you really need everyone on the field to understand their role and what they're good at and focus on that and have them focus on that. It doesn't mean you can't learn other roles, but your primary role is what you were hired to do. And hopefully that's what you're really good at. So it's about roles and responsibilities. So occasionally in the NFL, yeah, the running back throws the ball, but that's rare. And it's when it's needed, when they want to mix up the play a little bit. So I'm just a huge believer in roles and responsibilities and really staying in your lane. I see a lot of problems in organizations arise when people don't know what position they play. Their job's not well-defined. They play all over the field. So it just causes chaos. And it's really the difference between having an organized play that everyone understands or you just surrender to complete chaos. Turning to my time as a soccer mom, though, the teams, I noticed this just sitting on the sidelines. And I never played soccer, by the way. And I didn't know a lot about it until my daughter started playing. But the t- what I did notice were the teams that were excellent were the ones who understood the idea of passing the ball to advance up the field. Even at nine and 10, the ones who got that, who had a coach that understood that, they played like a team, they possessed. And the ones who struggled were the ones who had maybe one or two stars. There was a ball hog and they could never, you know, they just dump and run and and get a goal that way. 
but they didn't use the team to advance the ball. So I think that's important in terms of building a functioning marketing team. You have to know when to pass the ball and you have to know when to look up and see, you know, you can't get to the goal on your own. You need the team. You need to use each other. And then everyone wins. So I don't know if I answered the question, but that's what I took away from my years in sports was team building and the importance of not just relying on a star to save the day. Yeah, sure. And then that chasm between, in my mind anyway, and in my experience, I should say not in my mind, <laughs> between sales and marketing is, uh, is as large as I've ever seen it. There seems to be almost a, a competitive uh, element there that it's like, I've said it many times, you know, the, I can see the SDR leader saying this, you know, I've said it many times, these, these MQLs for marketing are just dog crap and, and are, are a waste of our time. And here, I've just proven it to you. They gave us 80 the other day, not one of them converted. Yeah, you know, and, and marketing sort of stands there and says, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to do our job here. You know, I've had, you know, affinity for and managed both functions multiple times. So mm-hmm. it's not about SDR versus or sales versus marketing or vice versa. But it seems to me that whatever genius decided years ago that those two organizations ought to report to different people made a big mistake. I think that the skills involved in parts of those jobs are very different. But nonetheless, the goal of revenue is equally shared between those two functions. And until they start to work together, I just don't see how this is ever going to kind of mend. Well, one, I couldn't agree more. And I've been in organizations where it did feel like a competition with sales versus marketing and sales working together. The one thing that I'm so thankful for at Exabeam is that I report into the president of the company. And the president runs sales and marketing. So sales and marketing are together under the president who reports then to the CEO. And I have never been in a more aligned group than I have at Exabeam. And I do believe it is because sales and marketing have the same leader. And he is, I, I mean, for lack of a better word, he's got both of our backs. I don't, you know, I don't feel like sales is going to sell out marketing because we both report to the president and he wants us both to succeed. He doesn't just have sales under him. He has both both of the functions. And also the SDRs reported to marketing. And that has been a game changer as well. So I I think there's lots of different ways you can structure your your teams, but the way we are structured currently at Exabeam has been really, really great. And it's also um, doing wonderful things for the business and the growth of the business. Yeah, I mean we're and we're all motivated by the same things, right? So if you it's pretty easy to figure out if you want me to do A, you 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 reward me for doing A. If you want me to do B, mm-hmm. you, you do you reward me for doing B. So, you know, it's 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 not a mystery, uh, but we've yeah. got to change that to be more successful, I think. So yeah. it's good good for you and good for Exavim in that regard. I'm conscious of the time here, Sherry, mm-hmm. and I've got one final question for you. We're building out our cybered.io cybersecurity online learning and education platform. And a lot of our listeners today are usually interested in how they can develop a mentoring network to help them learn and grow within the field. I know you have some opinions about and experience with mentoring, and and I hope you can share some of that wisdom with our with our audience here today. Sure. 
Well, mentorships are invaluable and a good mentor is life-changing. You know, statistically, people who have mentors, they're more likely to be successful in their careers. So I think mentorship is, is key. You know, my hope is that all men and women have an opportunity to meet a mentor. You know, when I got to Silicon Valley 25 years ago, I was fortunate to meet my mentor at my first job. And we're still close to this day. She's, she's also a tech CMO. And she's helped me through some really challenging times. I'm often asked by younger workers, how do I find a mentor? And, you know, to be honest, it can be really daunting to pick someone and, and just say, hey, can you be my mentor? I've found mentors more through friendship than actually saying, okay, I'm going to choose you. But my advice is also don't be shy. If you see someone who you think could help you, and also importantly, who you could see yourself being friends with, then you found your mentor. You know, I would encourage everyone to make sure you have a network of mentors as you grow in your career because they're so key to success. You know, and there's also some really good organizations you can join to find mentors and to look for mentors. I'm in an organization called firstboard.io. Uh, they're an organization looking to get women on their first board. And even though I've been in Silicon Valley for 25 years, I'm meeting women in that group that I'm meeting for the first time who uh, you're never too old to need a mentor. So I'm, I'm meeting a lot of great folks that way. So if you can't find someone at work, there are lots of organizations you can be part of that can you know, help you find a mentor that way too. Yeah. As you mentioned that, I'm thinking that we created this this thought leadership uh, group here called the uh, Cyber Theory Institute. And thus far, we've focused it on the Zero Trust Initiative. And we've got some, you know, sort of senior fellows who are experienced folks in the uh, experience. I mean, the originators of Zero Trust and some of the creators and so forth. And I'm thinking, you know, it would be great to have a sort of an equivalent initiative around, around cybersecurity marketing where, you know, you got a dozen or so people that are expert in the field and and share the same views about mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't work. And because, you know, from my point of view, and I've you know been doing this for a while, I have yet to find an organization that that is similar to what I've just described that you can go to and say, how did you like solve the problem? This is a broad problem that everybody has. And you would think with that kind of breadth that it would get a lot of attention, but it doesn't, it seems to be fragmented. You know, the whole conversation we just had, I don't actually have with very many people. Yeah. It's such an important focus, I think, for all of us. Yeah. I think it's great that that you are doing that as part of uh, Cyber Theory. Well, thanks. I might tap you here going forward. So <laughs> Always happy to help. All right. Great. So, but for today, we're out of time. And uh, I wanted to thank our guest, Sherry Lowe, again, for taking time out of your crazy schedule to join me, what I hope was an interesting exchange. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Steve. Thank thank you for having me as a guest. It was uh, great to spend this time with you. Terrific. I appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another one of our unplugged reviews of the complex and frightening world of cybersecurity technology and our new digital reality. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at 
For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.